Hello and welcome to What Comes Next, the podcast that discusses technologies that will shape your future. Hey, Barbara, how you been? Hey, Kweko, I'm doing great. How are you? I'm well. I've, although I've like just come in from a walk around the, the wetlands in Walthamstow and it's absolutely baking hot, like really, really hot today. So I'm enjoying the weather, but like forgetting what it's like to actually have like sweltering hot weather. It's good. It's, uh, it's been nice. I know. Tell me about it. I came today with my puffer jacket to the office. <laughs> Boiling. <you know? laughs> Feeling very tropical today, but you know, I mean, coming from Brazil, I always enjoy when the sun is out, so I can't really complain. Yeah, definitely. No, it's good stuff. And London is in a different mood at the moment. You know, it's like, okay, all right, maybe we have like a proper summer of it this year, which would be amazing. So, and it's great timing for the sun to come out. We are just around the corner for the holiday. Exactly. So, exactly. I'm looking forward to picnics and barbecues, hopefully. Oh, mate, like, honestly, it just feels like it's been so long since, you know, those kind of big get togethers. I think people are just crying out for it, man. It's gonna be good. It's gonna be really good. I'm hoping to get to like a festival or two this year. That'd be amazing. You know, childcare permitting. <laughs> but um, yeah, that would be like phenomenal. Yeah. Um, and I'll tell you what, I had like, I had a bit of a, a kind of novelty of, of getting on a flight the other day. So I've just come back from Dublin. Yeah, yeah. Which was like amazing, actually, like, and also just with a backpack and not a pram mm-hmm. and like a million things to bring with yeah. me, which is very nice. Yeah. I love this kind of like rediscoveries of simple things that we are doing now again. You know, like for me, it's just walking across the park and then seeing a lot of people just sitting down and having a good time. Yeah. And now being like actually freezing because yeah. every last year it was so cold, but it was yeah. a place where we could actually meet up with people. So um, I'm really enjoying the, you know, the joys of rediscovering simple things now uh, once again definitely definitely and like the, even like the sound of people like just jamming outside and, and like chilling and having a good time like yeah i mentioned like it, i was out in dublin and like the the pubs out there all rammed again actually shout out to my mate uh my mates nehar and mayor who put me up over there like that's an incredible city and you know just nice to be like outside of london and, and, and jamming again i'm hoping that this is like a good omen for the whole of the summer we'll see how we go but today we're not here to talk about traveling and sunshine and mm-hmm. the breaking of restrictions. We're here to talk about some really, really interesting stuff. So obviously, we've got this amazing guest on. On this episode of What Comes Next, we speak with Ian Atkinson, Chief Science Officer of Grow Group. Grow Group are redefining the field of cannabis research and development, establishing groundbreaking testing methods with the potential to change the lives of medicinal cannabis users and patients worldwide. It's an area of research of huge importance and massive economic significance. But as you'll hear, it has been neglected for many years by business and academia and is still hampered by the perceptions of individuals in the chain between scientists, growers, practitioners, and their patients. In 2022, a climate in which patients are increasingly inclined to educate themselves about choices for the management and improvement of their own health, the work of Grow Group and their research arm Grow Biotech is timely and is playing a major role in changing this landscape for good. It's a fascinating subject with wide-reaching implications for the future of patient care, not only through cannabis compounds, but with regard to drug discovery and drug testing as a whole. So without further ado, let's get ready for what comes next. Okay, Ian, welcome to what comes next. I would love you to uh, introduce yourself to our listeners. Uh, Dr. Ian Atkinson. I have a PhD in applied molecular biology and biochemistry, postdoc at UC Berkeley, I then joined a small startup, Molecular Dynamics, which eventually became Amateur Pharmacia, which is now GE. So I got. Oh, wow. Okay. 
It's just the small stuff then. <laughs> the startup turned into, into a large company. So I got to watch that whole process and how young companies are very dynamic and very energetic, but they have difficulty with funding. On the other side, you've got large companies. They've got lots and lots of funding, lots of breadth of capabilities, but it takes a long time to make a decision. Mm. So I got to watch that. After I um, returned to Canada, became an academic for two years in London, Ontario, and found that my passion actually lies in industry. So academia was not for me. So I returned to a small company in, in uh, San Diego area, uh, Illumina, which at last I counted as a $58 billion market cap. And I get to watch the, the hockey stick from, from the inside on that one. Wow, yeah. So I returned home to Canada to deal with ailing parents. And when I did, my best friend taps me on the shoulder and says, I've got this great idea, but I need somebody who's been in industry to help me with it. He was a combat trauma surgeon for 20 years with Canadian forces. And he was trying to invent a way of stopping bleeding in a field setting. That product's now being sold in 40 countries. And uh, actually some of those devices are now in the Ukraine. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. And tell us how that device works quickly. What's, what's the kind of crux of it? The crux of it, imagine a girl's hair clip that you would use to stop bleeding by sealing the skin. By creating a pool of blood under pressure under the skin and sealing up that skin with nowhere for the additional blood to go, once that pool of blood is full, you don't actually lose any more blood. You have containment. And when the pressure of the heart matches the pressure in that pool of blood, you have um, you've stopped the bleeding. It has the chance to clot if it can clot. But minimally, you get a longer time to get to a higher level of care, like a hospital. So it's literally you seal the skin in areas where you can seal the skin, the arms, the legs, the neck, the groin, the armpits, areas where you could bleed out in a, in a quite a short period of time. It gives you time to get to a higher level of care. So that's what we're looking at. It's a time-saving device, essentially. It's giving you the space that you need to get to the, the medical attention that you need. Okay. Interesting. My wife started a cannabis company and we moved back to Canada. And then seeing all of the expertise that I developed over time, I met my business partner in Germany at the ICBC meeting there. ICBC being? Oh, dear. <laughs> That's the National Cannabis Business Conference. Okay. We actually met on the day that Germany legalized medicinal cannabis. That's the first fact of the day that I didn't know. I thought that cannabis was illegal in Germany. Not for medicinal use. Okay, right. And they're actually going towards recreational use in a in a reasonable time frame. Interesting. We're definitely going to touch on this a little bit later in the show, but just to give us a bit of an idea, how are we seeing the kind of movement of countries towards the legalization profile, and, and where does the UK sit in that as well? I'm from Canada, and so the Canadians were somewhat first in that they were first to go recreational legal on a large scale. That's not 100% true. Uruguay actually went first. But from a large distribution perspective, from an export perspective, they were one of the, the big commercial marketplaces for rec recreational adult use cannabis. Uh, the one thing that did happen, though, was that as European cannabis started to become more and more uh, accepted, it was much more on the medicinal side. So it was much more on uh, with doctor supervision, definitely not going towards rec legal in a in the same sort of time frame, a lot more rigorous, a lot more conservative. And so in terms of making sure that physicians are involved for the UK, for example, uh, it's not primarily the general practitioners that are doing the prescribing, it's specialists. And it's closer to the end of the algorithm. So it's more, they've tried a number of things and now they're considering using cannabis. And what it means is that there's been slower adoption, 
but much more rigor in that process. In other jurisdictions, it's a little bit faster, but with less rigor. So there's, there's balances, plus, pluses and minuses to be had. So it's something that they adjust to catching up with? Catching up with or doing it in a different way that's much more appropriate to their own regulatory burden okay. as necessary. So I would say it's much more like a pharmaceutical. They treat okay. it like an un unlicensed pharmaceutical here or a special, specials medicine. Obviously, there's huge market demand for that. One of the things that's that's so interesting about Grow Biotech is that you guys are really patient first, that's right. right? So we're actually, Grow Biotech is a portion of Grow Group. So where we have sort of three primary arms. The first arm we have is more of um, how to access the, be the best basket of medicine for the physician. So if the physician is going to be prescribing, they need to have the choice of which flower or which oil is best suited to which patient. So there's lots of indications where physicians are considering writing scripts. The challenge is, do they have the right product for the right indication? So it's based on the physician's choices, based on education, based on the literature, the peer-reviewed literature. It's a whole bunch of uh, numerous factors. So what we try to do is we try to import into the UK the best possible products so that they get the best choice. Second to that is we actually work on innovation to uh, make it better, faster, and cheaper. So we're trying to make less expensive cannabis medicines. We try to improve processing. We try to improve dose control. One of the problems with flour is it's not really easy to dose because every flour is just a little bit different. And when you have a multitude of components, it's hard to do that dosing. So we're trying to improve the uniformity of dose control. And then combining with that, we also are working on new modalities, new delivery mechanisms that include uh, tablets, capsules, potentially inhalation devices. So we're working on a PMDI right now with a partner, which is a puffer. Doctors are used to being able to see uh, modalities that they're easy to prescribe. They understand them. And so if we can give something that's comparable, then they would actually be more likely to prescribe it than they would. They're, they're not used to prescribing a flower, more like a Chinese or an Ayurvedic style of medicine. Right. Okay. And in terms of controlling the dose, does this involves more bioengineering and dealing with the variants of the species that you deal with mm -hmm. uh, in the cannabis, or it's more related to the process of extracting the oils and the components in the flower? So it's a com combination of API generation. So it's actually getting efficiently to the point of having pure crystal, so mm -hmm. API-grade uh, cannabinoids themselves, if we're going for an API-grade formulation. So in one case, if we want really good dose control, we can do that with cannabinoids added and reconstituted back into a mixture. Or we can go with a full spectrum extract, which is straight from the, the, the flower, but we can do so in a much more contained and much more controlled manner. So in both directions, the reconstitution from individual components and re-adding them back to make a mix, or to start with a mix and then just having good control over that mix and topping up to get a consistent dosage, both ways have, have pros and cons. Even just from the delivery methodology, it's interesting that that perception of the doctors is a huge part of what you're having to do. You're changing minds as well as having research that underpins that, right? Yeah, well, we, we have a hard time with some of the names of some of the flowers. There's not a lot of X's, Z's, and P's in, in <laughs> names of these drugs yeah. when you're dealing with White Widow or right. dealing with OG Kush. <laughs> not, not your average medicine, but the fact is if we can uh, get past that, then we actually have to get past that they haven't been trained formally on this. So we have 
medical science liaisons. We have MSLs that actually go out and work with the doctors to formally train them to help them with the process. And, and what do you find? That, you know, can you describe what those first conversations tend to, how they go? A lot of it, and again, from my MSL's perspective, that what, what they're telling me is that it takes a long time to actually to build a trust, to develop, build that relationship. We have journal clubs, for example, where we actually introduce papers, where they're trying to do peer-reviewed articles, and they're trying to understand whether this is a, a good medicine or the circumstance that they're looking for. It's actually kind of tough because they've never been trained in this area, and we're trying to, to well, change their mind that this is not stigmatized, it's not the bad product, that there are some merit to do this mm. in the right conditions. Right, so I imagine at the same time you're trying to educate the doctors, you're also trying to give them the tools that they need to educate the patients as well after that process, right? In both directions, the patients are actually, in some cases, training the physicians as okay. well. So it's, it's a nice combination because by working with patients, we have patient advocates who are actually uh, working with the patients to understand their needs, to understand them better so that they can actually get to a position and we prepare them up. It's really interesting. And I guess that, you know, you're going to be dealing with lots of patients that are very well educated because they've got the pain point, you know, the, the motivation to, to seek alternatives. There's been a lot of non-cannabis naive individuals. So these are individuals who've been using cannabis for a long time. They know what works. They know even if they've been using it in a, a gray market, that they're using it primarily for medicinal purposes. Perhaps it's to help with sleep or pain. One of the indications that it's appropriate for. So the challenge for them is trying to remind the physician that they've gone through this for perhaps even several years, and they've been using this in self-titrating and self-dosing. It would be better if they could accurate the quantification of their dose, but they've been self-titrating instead. Right, to improve the, the, the positive effects that it's having on the disease. Normally, it's for chronical situations where patients need to present the best improvements, isn't it? Yes, but again, it's primarily for symptom management, so it's not really a curative. It's mainly handling the pain. It's handling uh, circumstances for, for chronic management. But it also comes with doctor supervision because there's other medications on board. Exactly, so yeah. to make sure that, that they're working together so that it's not just doing it in addition to the physician. It's actually in combination with the physician. Okay. And I believe there are studies that also show there are different cannabinoids that act for different symptoms as well, right? Mm -hmm. So I suppose the doctor plays a big role in determining which, which is the best oil for a certain situation. As you said, the combination of all the kinds of medicine that is being used with the patient as well, right? That's right. And so again, they usually go with a go low, start slow type approach where they try to introduce slowly and try to see the effects. So different cannabinoids. There's only a limited number that actually get used to date, but there's hundreds. There's about a hundred and, well, they estimate between 120 and 150 cannabinoids. Okay. Normally they're in such small amounts that they're not pharmacologically relevant, mm -hmm. if smoked. But we don't know what they do because we haven't really studied them because we've had this 80 year gap of really studying them in detail. So we know a little bit about probably the top 25. And then we're starting to get into gray zone. What exactly do these do? And what could they be used for? So there's so much real estate for, for good research. Amazing. There are all of these compounds that people haven't even had the chance to study yet. You're saying that there's a whole essentially field of research, which is, you said, 80 years behind. Yes. So Israel is probably the, the forefront when it comes to understanding these compounds, doing the chemistry on them, 
actually having some some really good uh, attention to detail in terms of studying the uh, the actual chemistry bits of the these cannabinoids. And the one problem is that trying to get them in high enough amounts, not just from synthesizing them, but actually from isolating them from the plant, mm -hmm. is to have enough so that they can do analytic studies, so that they can understand what these compounds would be good for in a clinical environment. So I think the problem is we've got all of this potential, but we haven't actually scaled it to be able to have tons worth of this, these materials when they're present in 0.001% of the active ingredients from some of these strains, because they've been bred to be in higher THC concentration. Mm. Reason mm -hmm. is logical. If you're trying to use this to, to, to sell, you would try and sell the, the active ingredient that people want to buy. So some of these other compounds have been pushed to lower and lower amounts. So from a breeding perspective, we don't know what these could do if you try to increase the, 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 mechan uh, the metabolic pathways to, to push these compounds into higher and higher amounts. So they're starting to do that with some of the other cannabinoids, but the really rare ones, not so much yet. Where do you start looking? You know, is there an archetype of a compound that you would say, okay, well, we're looking for something that's shaped like this or that behaves like this? Or how, where so do you start? Looking for something that starts with a resorcinol backbone with possibly a terpene bound growth. So you're looking for a number of different scaffolds that have just different subtle different changes. And so that's the exciting part is that they're not that different. They have subtle differences. Maybe it's the length of the tail. Mm. THC has a five-membered tail, but there's other compounds with a three or a seven-membered tail that have different properties. Very interesting possible changes that could be made if you just subtly change the, the synthetic mechanism of the, of the plant. You use chemistry and change the mechanism there. Fascinating. And one of the things that we, we got into in a little bit more detail the last time we met was how this isolation of compounds actually takes place. And this is where I started to kind of, you know, I was, I was already on the, on the boundary of what I understood in terms of the science. And uh, so now that I've got my backup here, uh, I, would, I, would, I would love to, to dig into that in a bit more detail. I remember, I think there was a phrase, a, a nano sponge or something of that nature. <laughs> what we've actually been working on is a means to avoid or uh, replace distillation in the extraction and purification process. The idea being that if we can extract the cannabinoids out of the trichomes from the plant, we've got a big soup. And what we're hoping to do is to take the polar compounds, the, the more aqueous compounds, and the compounds that are really large and really fatty, like waxes and some of the primary residuals. Um, we're trying to separate the cannabinoids, the terpenes, and some of the hydrophobic compounds away from that those two pools. So what we've done is we've actually got a synthetic insoluble polymer that is formed into small particles, like a nanosponge. Right. And you mix in an ethanolic solution, the nanosponge, and you find there's not particularly good binding because the cannabinoids want to be in the ethanol, they don't want to be in the sponge. But when you slowly add water, as you slowly change the conditions from the miscible solvent into a water predominant solvent, and you increase it very slowly, you find that there's a driving force. Okay. And the cannabinoids are actually driven into the center of the sponge. Right. So what you're doing is you're essentially giving it a place to hide. 
But as the water level goes up, the oily compounds, the greasy compounds, want to get out of it. Mm. So they hide in the sponge. And by hiding in the sponge, as long as they fit, they can actually easily stay there. And you can remove the, the tea bag that has all of the particles in it. That's a methodology. We actually referred to the, the process as the British tea bag approach. Yeah, exactly. Because what we do is we, we have the particles in a in a basket, and we lift the basket out, and then we transfer it into a new teacup, which is filled with water. And oh, that's wow. how we work. so we've taken separated the extract, the compounds of interest, and we move that into a water wash. And we mix it for a period of time, then we lift it up again, and we allow it to dry. And after it's been completely dried, it's stable. So it's stable so that it can be stored. We actually believe that it can have up to two and a half years, two to two and a half years worth of stability mm -hmm. for compounds that are labile and oxygen. So these have about a one-year shelf life. So we can extend the shelf life just by storing them on the polymer itself. Oh, amazing. Okay. Amazing, yeah. uh -huh. And the other thing that's important is you can ship, because it's easy to ship powder. So if you put it into a Mylar bag or into a large mini bulk bag, you can ship tons of this material because it's stable. It can actually be easily handled when it, instead of trying to handle a viscous liquid or powder if you've gone to the API stage. Of course. So at the same time, you're trying to develop well, you guys have already been working on that. Uh, separation methodology, also creating at the same time a loading methodology that uh, allows you to not only separate the compounds, but also load them in an in infrastructure they can actually more easily use for producing composites and also for logistics purposes, right? That's right. The nice thing is that we also have strong belief based on the, the end of this process. You can <clears throat> elute with ethanol. Just putting it into the original condition, it switches it back. So you can dilute it with ethanol, and now you've got highly concentrated material. You could dilute it with supercritical CO2. So you could actually have a solvent free output to go straight into a formulation that would be an edible or into some food where you don't want to taste the solvent. And then there's other ways that we could get it off as well. So it's not absolutely stuck to one mechanism. So it could be used in a formulation, it could be used in medicinal uh, manufacture. And what we've done is we've concentrated all of the cannabinoids and all of the terpenes at this point. But it also has some other components as well, like bioflavonoids, some of the other pigments are coming along to the rut. So there's a possibility in the future of developing more targeted capture. So we can capture and concentrate those compounds that we want as a, as a bulk. But the next stage would be to capture one compound at a time. Okay, because that's something I was about to ask. Because the cannabinoids tend to have very similar structures, right? So I was wondering if the use of the polymer facilitates separating one from another. Well, there is some data that we've generated that shows that we can physically separate certain compounds from each other under the physical conditions that we that's do. That's about chromosome. Yes. So the, depending upon the strain, if the strain has a multitude of cannabinoids, it might be more difficult. But if the strain has two or three, you might be able to separate one from the other two or all three from each other. Awesome. So now we're awesome. going to uh, very uh, rapidly go from an extract to almost uh, ready for crystal type purifications. And we're also working on collaboration potential with other groups to help to complement with existing tech. 
So instead of just trying to do this instead of a technology, it's a tool on a toolbox. You don't always get the right tool without another tool. So we might be able to do this in combination with others. So we're willing to play in the sandbox with others. Amazing. And I can only imagine that there are a lot of research institutes that are crying out for research grade purified different compounds. Do you, do you think that you'll be able to separate every single one of those compounds out and essentially have a menu that research institutes could pick from? Or? In a perfect world, yes. In a reality situation, we're probably going to do a subset. The ones sure. that make the most financial sense. Okay. And then we'll grow where it's needed. And presumably that's going to be driven by medicinal market forces, right? So, so from an analytics perspective, some of the analytics labs may tell us what they're really looking for. Mm -hmm. And so there will be a demand from that side. Yeah, the physicians, they're, they're looking for clinical products. So they'll have an input demand for a particular cannabinoid or a particular isomers of a particular cannabinoid. So the Having that level of specificity means that we can, we can choose which cannabinoids are the, the, the first that we go after, the lowest fruit. Do we go after all of them? I doubt we'll go after all of them, but we'll go after quite a few. Just to give our listeners an idea of kind of how much this is uncharted territory, I think you mentioned that a lot of these don't even have names yet, right? They're, they're all based on them. Okay. And these are potentially... This is quite kind of, should we say, like ripe hunting ground for, for interesting compounds. Why is that? What is it about the plant? I'm going to test you on a different field of your, uh, <laughs> 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 your experience now. I think there's been a limited number of individuals who've been doing this work. There's some amazing scientists who've been doing this work, but it hasn't been an open field to, to study. It's been much more limited because of availability of plant material, uh, availability of the strains that are currently available. In the U.S., for example, there's one site that has most of the cannabinoid for research purposes. Not that that's correct or incorrect, just when you have a limited source, you have a limited uh, bandwidth with which you can uh, do those studies. So it's, it's a little more difficult to, to get the variety of land races that exist. People haven't done those studies for those purposes. Sure. Okay. Sorry, Barbara, you're going to... No, I'm just going to touch upon something because I believe a lot of the stigmatization that comes around the medicinal use of cannabis comes from the lack of understanding of how the compounds actually help us, us in our body to mitigate all of the symptoms. And it was something that I actually uh, learned about today at Endo cannabinoid system, am I saying that right? Um, yeah, uh, and then how we actually also produce cannabinoids uh, in our body. Is that correct? That's right. I think this is something that a lot of people don't know. And actually the ones that we extract from cannabis, actually, we call plant-based cannabinoids, right? Phytocannabinoids, that's right. Okay. But the endocannabinoids are actually produced in the body. They're a natural product. And those same receptors that receive the endocannabinoid re interactions are the same ones that the phytocannabinoids interact with. So it means that the plant is doing, uh, it's just a compound that the body recognizes as being similar to the compounds that are naturally, that you're synthesizing yourself. From a homeostatic perspective, we're just changing the way it's coming in, whether it's synthesized internally or consumed from a plant. Yeah, and so if your choice as a patient is between a compound which is and I'm going to be really careful with the room that I'm saying is in a chemical near relative to something that's produced in the body versus something that's completely alien and synthesized completely separately in a lab, like a you know, 
human synthesized medicine. Like opioids, for example. Right, exactly. To have the same effect. So, you know, pain relief, relief of anxiety. Is it fair to say that the cannabinoid is likely to have a much lower impact on the rest of that patient? Just side effects? You can synthesize using traditional chemistry cannabinoids. Right, okay. So you can make CBD, you can make THC synthetically, and it'll have exactly the same effect, exactly on the same location in the brain. So if you were to consume a synthesized version, it's going to have pretty much the same effect. It's not going to have the rest of the entourage. When they talk about the entourage effect, they're talking about a synergy of pharmacology, which means that if you have a multiple uh, cannabinoid mixture, some of those cannabinoids will get in the way of the others. Some of them will help to enhance the others. So if you have a mixture of terpenes and cannabinoids that you're consuming, one of the terpenes may help blood-brain barrier penetration. One of the other cannabinoids may interfere with the anxiety that's created by THC. So if you take pure THC, it creates a very strong anxiety response. If you take THC with CBD in it, it actually helps to meter that response. So most people don't like to take THC absolutely alone. They tend to take it with some metering effect with other compounds. So that's part of the benefit of having the mixture. So if you just use a purely biosynthetic compound with one compound in it, it's really quite difficult to get a proper experience for pain, for whatever indication is, is appropriate that the doctor's prescribing, which is why uh, flour tends to be a better response than some of the pure synthetic compounds. But you can only go so far with that because dose control. Then there's where you have your inconsistency. If you have lots of compounds, you have to control each one of them to have good dose control. But you can do that with a smaller subset. You're not doing a full 140 or 150. Interesting. Okay. And again, this comes back to the application, the use of these uh, substances with practitioners. Yeah. Okay. We spoke about the fact that this is an industry that has kind of been hampered. Uh, you said 80 years behind. That's the past. Let's look to the future for a minute, right? This is obviously really exciting innovations that we're talking about with massive potential huge economies attached to it, right? But also um, changes to patient outlook and medical outlook for cannabis. 10 years down the line, what are your hopes for the, the state of the industry by then? I think my one hope is that the industry is not seen as being those pot guys that we're taking seriously as professionals. Because I think the problem is that from a science perspective, if we're doing good science, we're doing good science. It doesn't matter whether the origins of the plant have a more recreational origin. The fact is that these compounds can be incredibly helpful to both children, to adults, to the elderly. There's a huge upside to these compounds. Taken seriously, taken like pharmaceuticals, and taken in a way that um, gives benefit, the patient should come first. And there's very little harm that comes from these compounds. So the the actual uh, toxic doses are so incredibly high, people don't get to that. So you, you hear very rarely about anybody having severe side effects. Whereas when you think about some of the other compounds, drug-drug interactions or uh, opioids is a great example, where you've got people dropping from existing pharmaceuticals. You want them to take something that's safe, that causes little harm, and actually has the potential of being therapeutically relevant. 
So that's how I want to see cannabinoids in the future in 10 years, not just as a, oh, you must be uh, wearing uh, fan leads on your, on your jacket. Right. Professional. Don't you think that there's something there which is the consumer is kind of ahead of the perception on this one, right? Like, okay, sure, that stereotypical weed smoker, aren't they just like ahead of the curve on appreciating a substance that people are yet to catch up to? I think they've been using it medicinally for many years. So many people who use it recreationally also have medicinal use. Perhaps they're having trouble sleeping. And so they use it and they don't acknowledge that it's a medicinal use. It's just it helps them relax and then they go to sleep easier. I think that there's a, a huge part of this, which is, you know, the kind of campaign against marijuana use, yeah. right? Like there was huge PR budgets put in place to specifically target the image of those those people that have their, their recreational use of marijuana. Whereas this is something that's been used in, you know, indigenous cultures for thousands and thousands of years. It seems like that's another kind of chapter of the, um, the evolution of perceptions that we're talking about here. Like that needs to happen as well. If it's ever going to be a situation where you have to look a certain way and dress a certain way in order to be taken seriously in this conversation. And I worry that, you know, that, that could be lost somewhere in here if we're not really, really careful. We need to shift mass opinion away from that. There needs to be a sensible kind of adult conversation about that. I think that's exactly some of the challenges that the industry has in that people don't take the industry seriously. And as such, you find that uh, certain academics won't do those studies. Yeah. They won't actually do the research because they feel that it will affect their reputation. Physicians, they won't prescribe because it will affect their reputation. So it's not like that 10 years from now, it would be nice that that wasn't the case, mm. that physicians are not feeling stigmatized if they actually consider at the end of their algorithm prescribing or the academic who would normally publish isn't assuming that they have to publish negative data so that they could be taken seriously. So it's not just, like it's open and it's proper good quality data that may or may not agree to the point, but at least it's being handled in a mature manner. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. The journey that it looks like this industry is going to go on is incredibly exciting. But just like you said, right, we've got a situation where the perception in the Academic community is one way. We've got another perception in the medical community. Patients are another part of this. I'm really interested to hear how the business community has received you guys. Because you've raised, you know, you've, people have invested in this business and it's a thriving SME. Tell me what that journey's been like. Well, imagine a whole new industry that's never existed before, where you already know that it's a viable business based on black market. So you've got all of this potential the, the commercial potential of, of these products, where there's hundreds of thousands, if not millions of users in certain jurisdictions, we're just using them from whatever source. When that becomes more legalized, more process-driven, the opportunities for legal companies are going to be huge, both on the medical side and on the adult use side. So the fact is, it's not unreasonable to think that there's a big potential because they already have some total addressable market numbers. And you also have the opportunities of these companies to sell at a reasonable price. So the fact is, you're starting to see sort of the 10 to, to 20 pounds per gram for these products. That's quite expensive, but it's also, from a commercial perspective, it's got profit potential. So it's not that you're trying to make a product that will be commoditized to almost nothing. There's still demand for that product. So if you're growing it, if you have 
supply chain stability and security. You may actually be the one making that product at a reasonable price, and now you can sell it for more. So it's good business to actually be in the commodities element of this. And so our CEO is actually with JP Morgan, and he has done commodities work in the past. So he understands the challenges of this. So from our perspective, we think it's a good business opportunity. And so we sell the patient first, but we also sell the business opportunity that there's money to be made. In terms of the competition with more traditional pharma companies, mm -hmm. do you perceive a pushback for the introduction of cannabis-based products in the market? Because, I mean, a big part of the profit still comes from the prescription of traditional medicine, right? So, directly, as a small company, large pharmaceutical companies are kind of irrelevant. They, they don't really care about us. They kind of leave us to our own devices because we're in the non, we're in the specials market. We're not in the direct competition to those products. So they don't really notice us. They don't really, like, they, they will notice us and they will have um, interest in cannabinoids, but to date, they really, it's not the opposite of love is hate, it's kind of indifference. So there's a few pharmaceutical companies that are interested in the space, but many just don't pay much attention to us. They're waiting for you guys to do the groundwork so they can come in after it's done. Well, if we develop the marketplace, they might. And we're starting to see some uh, interesting deals coming through with some of the larger players. Even in the, the tobacco space, you're starting to see big tobacco starting to come into this space. And so there's opportunities as well if you have a novel delivery mechanism that tobacco might be interested in. Or perhaps it's the large pharma. If it can be repurposed to a delivery of a compound that's not a cannabinoid, but might be, uh, we tease in-house, in a the erectile dysfunction drug that actually is a five-minute delivery time. Right. So if you can create an, an inhaled version of that, and with the expertise that's coming from the cannabinoid space, you might be able to have a quick response that doesn't have to pass through the liver, and therefore you don't have 40-minute time frames, maybe five to 10. So that may actually change the interest in that product. Wow, so on top of all of the benefits that the actual development of the cannabinoids are bringing to the general population and the industry per se, there is also all of this science that is being developed on the back of it to support the, the whole development of the cannabis industry that can have big impact in other areas as well. Correct. So yeah, it's not just about doing it with, with a narrow focus into cannabis, it could actually be into other areas like into the, uh, the psilocybin area or into traditional pharma. And so having the expertise in traditional pharma with a lot of our team members, we actually understand the, the rigor that's necessary to get a product through the clinical trial process and actually go through and uh, get these products uh, FDA clear or getting CE mark on some of these uh, medical devices that would be in combination. It's not just about doing this with a very narrow focus of European cannabis. It can be cannabis worldwide. It can be outside of cannabis where the opportunities might lie. Absolutely fascinating. Is it as interesting and as fun to work in as it sounds like it would be? I'm a 12 year old. <laughs> and uh, I suppose it's probably worth us kind of touching on the team that you've got around you. You've got some pretty heavyweight academics as well as, you know, ex-traders from the likes of JP Morgan. Do you want to mention anyone else in the team? So the head of chemistry is uh, an ex-professor at Imperial College. So he was actually uh, in academia, decided he like, was going to step away and joined our team. 
And so he actually just gave, recently gave a talk at the Emerald Conference about his technology. This He's the primary developer of the sponge. And so he was talking about it in, in scientific terms that the audience really, truly appreciated because he didn't hold back. He didn't have to lay it down for them. He could actually give them a, a proper chemistry talk. The other team members are working on projects that I won't talk in too much detail about other than to say that they're working on the ability to capture individual cannabinoids, and they're also working on projects to um, deliver those cannabinoids in very unique methodologies. Instead of just doing the R&D, when I mentioned that we actually have multiple arms to the company, Grow Biotech is only one of the arms. The reason we we're called Grow Group is because we have five different arms. We sell into the UK market through a joint venture, and that's Grow Farm. So that's in combination with IPS, our pharmacy partner that actually enables the prescription being honored and delivered to the patient. So we've got Grow Farm for the UK, we've got Grow DAC or Grow Germany, which is just started, but it allows us to do a similar approach in Germany. We've got Grow Iberia, which is our production and growth site where we have four hectares under glass of a, of a greenhouse which also has the capabilities we're going to be growing into the processing of that material so we can make our own products at a reasonable price. Because in Spain, because it's the sunniest place in Europe, we don't have to add a lot of extra energy. So it's probably one of the, the, the most efficient places to grow, especially from an energy perspective. So we don't have to use so much energy, it's going to keep the prices down. We'd love to have it be 10 cents a gram. And then when we actually sell it, we can keep the price down for patients. It also means that they, they can be using our tech to help to do the processing. So if you can imagine that distillation requires vacuum and high temperatures to do the boiling component, imagine a low temperature technology where our capture and recovery can recover what's more representative of the plant, mm -hmm. which is the carboxylic acids. So CBDA or THCA normally have to be decarbed before it goes into a distillation system because of if it decards, it creates CO2 gas, and that essentially causes the CO2 breaks the vacuum seal. So if that happens, you lose the benefits. So they decard it before they put it in, so you're not getting those acids, which could in themselves be very medicinally relevant. There's a lot of people who drink smoothies. They take that plant and they just put them into a blender and they create smoothies because they want those acids and they can't get the money in their life. We can get them if we use our process. This is the same uh, entourage effect that you were talking about earlier? That's right. Okay because the carboxylic acid is going to have a different effect than just CBD itself. THCA is definitely different from THCA, but it allows us in Spain to actually have that as part of our manufacturing cycle. So we can bring in other people's products. We can bring in our own products. We can have them do their own processing with our technology, or we can do our own processing and bring in our own products. So there's a lot of flexibility in having the right basket of products for the patient. What makes the most sense for the patient? And so that, then there's Grow Biotech, which is the innovation arm. And we also have the head office, which is uh, the Grow Group's head office, essentially coordinates all of the others. So in terms of being the place you would invest, but also the center of all of the aspects of HR, all the aspects of business development, so that we can actually keep all those other arms working together. So we're talking about increased production, a less expensive product, higher quality, more um, specific variants or specific compounds. We're talking about a more intelligent patient, a better educated medical practice, and 
we're talking about new and innovative means of delivery as well. Absolutely fascinating. Ian, listen, it was so great to have you on the show. Thank you for for taking us into your world for 45 minutes or so. And yeah, teaching us all about this this fantastic field of study. Thanks for having me. Very much appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks so much, Ian. Thank you. Fantastic journey. Oh, man. Um, I love I, I loved when he was talking about like the fact that he still loves this area of research. Ian is like, obviously like a kid in a sweet shop, you know? Yeah. He was actually making me very jealous and making me miss the lab a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, actually, like the joy on how he talks about the experiments and all of the science that they are developing the background of everything. Because if anything, any, any message that I'm taking home is that any kind of technology, obviously, it's focusing on one specific field, such as what Ian is doing with cannabis. But at the same time, there is so much that is being created in the background of that that has an immense lack of applications for many other areas. So that, that's the lesson I'm taking from this talk today, Gregor. What about you? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think one of the key lessons that I've taken from it is, you know, be very, very careful about making a substance illegal because you're going to stunt, you know, research by, in this case, 80 years. And who knows what we might find, useful compounds, what intricate entourage effects we might be able to make use of once that field of study actually catches up. And it's all been done because of a kind of blanket sort of rule that so many countries have adopted. So that was super interesting to hear. I mean, for our listeners, you know, what you didn't see is that Ian came straight from the lab to to this. Then as he was leaving, he was still talking cannabis. You know, like this this is a guy who is just completely immersed in this world. And you can really, really see it in the, the kind of passion that comes through about the business. So cool what they're doing. So cool. The business and the patients and how much they're trying to develop something that can actually impact on people's lives, right? have a real impact, let's say. So that was something very, very admirable to see as well. On top of building a business, they're also so, so concerned about actually making an impact to people's lives and giving them the best that they can provide, right? In terms of not only the medicine itself, but also technology to support that. Yeah, I think like one of the things that you maybe you see slightly less of with startups and SMEs like Grow Group is, you know, they're usually very like laser guided on one thing, right? Which is cool. And, and sometimes that's that's necessary. But the cool thing about these guys is they're not only doing amazing research, but they're also changing minds, they're changing a culture towards this substance and towards any kind of, I guess, contentious types of research. And at the end of it are these patients that are hopefully not going to have to jump through all sorts of strange hoops to get the medicine that they need at the end of it. There's a profit-making entity, right, which is fantastic. But there's also this core of the business, which is trying to help people who really, really need this service. So yeah, I was, I was blown away by what they're doing. And I really do wish them all the best with it. Same for me. I can only wish them the best of luck and then success in the endeavors that they are embarking now. Then I hope yeah. that Ian's desires of what the field of cannabis as an industry looks like in 10 years actually comes through. And then that things become more and more easy for them to actually be out there helping people. 
Amazing. Yeah. Well, and that's it for this episode of What Comes Next. I'll say goodbye from me and see you next time. And this is a goodbye from me as well. More episodes coming up soon where we'll discuss the technologies that will shape your future. Don't forget to like and subscribe to our podcast as well so you can get the most recent updates and not miss any episodes coming up. And if you're developing some groundbreaking technology or have any idea of a guest that you'd like to see in the show, please you can get a hold of us on wcn at groundtree.co.uk. Thanks for listening and see you later. See you next time.